As she was making coffee, she looked out the window, and that's when she saw Tamla lying outside, face down, not moving. Madeline says that her first reaction was to get on her knees and pray. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I'm super, super excited that you guys are listening to my brand new podcast. You guys are the best familia ever. I appreciate all the feedback you guys have given me and I'm just so excited to continue to grow the podcast. Anya's here again and Anya, today we're going to be talking about what happened to 40-year-old Tamla Horsford. Now, this is one of those cases where you just know the truth is out there somewhere. Like someone knows what actually happened to her, but they refuse to come forward and and help the family get these answers. Tamla was at a birthday party, a simple birthday party that should have been a fun and relaxing night, but instead it ended with death. There's just so much information to go over, so let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Tamla Horsford. Tamla Yana Horsford was born in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which is an island country in the Caribbean in 1978. She immigrated with her family to the United States in 1989 and she lived in the Bronx. She had a sister named Summer and she was really close to her family. Her friends and family members say that Tamla was funny, witty, kind, and optimistic. She was an incredibly well-rounded person. She was a ray of light and she always put everyone first. Now Tamla moved to Florida and that's when she met a man named Leander Horsford. The two fell in love and they ended up getting married. Leander had a daughter from his first marriage and Tamla absolutely loved and cared for Leander's daughter. Now she was her stepdaughter and she treated her like she was one of her own. They had a very close mother-daughter relationship. That just really shows how loving and accepting Tamla was. The family eventually moved from Florida to Forsyth County in Cumming, Georgia for Leander's new job. According to the World Population Review, Cumming consists of 77.83% white Americans and only 7.28% black Americans in 2023, and the population was around 7,000 people. It's also worth noting that Forsyth County has a long history of racism and was once known as a sundown town. Wait, what is a sundown town? I've literally never heard of that. No, same. I wasn't too familiar with what that was, but the more common definition of what a sundown town is, is that it's a town that only wants or has white people living there. But another description of a sundown town was a town where law enforcement knowingly ignored racially motivated crimes past sundown. Wait, that's that's actually a thing because that's yeah. crazy no it's literally crazy and i never knew that this was like a thing or that there were still towns like that across america that defined as a sundown town Tamla and Leander had moved to this town with one of the most successful instances of racial cleansing in U.S. history. Let's talk about some of the history. In September of 1912, two separate alleged attacks on white women living in Forsyth County resulted in the lynching of two black men. After the executions, night riders, who are members of the KKK, actively threatened and intimidated the black residents of Forsyth until they all moved away. According to the 1980 census, only one person who identified as African-American called Forsyth County home. So living in this small town was a major shift for Tamla, but she adjusted and she made it her home. Tamla and Leander had five sons together and Tamla became a stay-at-home mom. She was a devoted mother to all six of her children. She was a type of person and mother who always put everyone else first and her own needs last. She just loved to give. Her sister called her a super mom. She was always the type of person to stand up for the little guy. She was also super involved in her community and she was friends with the other football moms in the town. She loved to show up for her kids' games and cheer them on with signs and with the megaphone. Her favorite line to yell was, can't stop greatness, whenever the refs at her boys' games would make a bad call. By 2018, Tamla and Leander's older daughter had moved out and she was an expecting mother. Both Tamla and Leander were so excited to be grandparents while also still raising their sons. Their youngest son was only four years old. 
So let's talk about what actually happened on Saturday, November 3rd, 2018. 40-year-old Tamla had plans to attend the 45th birthday party of a woman named John Myers. Tamla and John had just met this past August because their sons played on the same football team. And you know, they had become acquaintances, but they weren't super close friends. However, the week before, Tamla had hung out with John at her place for a pumpkin carving party with their children. That was the first time that they had ever really hung out outside of their son's football games and it was Tamla's first time being at John's house. John's birthday party was actually supposed to be a girl's sleepover. She suggested that since everyone would be drinking, the party guests should just stay over at her place for the night. That way, no one would risk drinking and driving. And everyone could just drink as much as they wanted to without having to worry about how to get home. One of the friends in this group named Stacy Smith organized the event, and it was supposed to start at 7 p.m. That evening, Tamla made her family a casserole for dinner and then she texted John and Stacy that she was running late. Before she left the house, she had told her husband that she didn't really want to go to the party. But Tamla was known for being a very nice and friendly person and she didn't want to offend anyone by saying no. She didn't want this group of women to think that she didn't like them, so she decided to go. Leander actually had his own plans for that night, but he canceled them and stayed home to watch the kids. That way, Tamla could have a night off and just go out and enjoy herself. Tamla and Leander kissed each other goodbye and then she drove herself to John's house. She arrived to John's house at around 8, 8.30 p.m. and all the other guests were already there. Tamla only knew John and one other guest named Bridget who she had only ever met once. So the other guests weren't friends to her. You know, they were kind of strangers. Now these guests included Madeline, Nicole, Marcy, Bridget, Jennifer, Sarah, and Paula. There were 10 women in total. Tamla got to the house, she said hi to everyone, put her bag down, and then she changed into her Dalmatian paw print pajamas. Now, something else to point out is that Tamla was the only black woman at this party. All the other women were white. When Tamla got to John's house, everyone said she was in great spirits. She was super friendly, she introduced herself to everyone that she didn't even know yet. I mean, she just seemed to be in a great mood. So, John had promised everyone that the party would be just a girl's night. You know, no husbands, no kids nothing. However, when Tamla showed up, she realized that John's boyfriend, Jose Barrera, and Stacy's husband, Tom Smith, were hanging out in the basement. Now, apparently, one of the men was having stomach issues at night, so the guys had just decided to hang out in the downstairs basement and watch the LSU game in John's theater room. John was also a big fan of LSU, and one of the reasons that she even hosted this party was because of the game, and because her four kids were staying at her husband's house that weekend. Tamla was a very gracious guest and she brought some tequila from Mexico as a gift for John. However, John said that she didn't want it because she doesn't drink tequila, so Tamla offered it to the other guests at the party, but they also didn't want to try it. One of the guests also later said that Stacy and John had made a comment about how the tequila smelled gross while Tamla was outside smoking. I just feel like that's rude and unnecessary. I mean, Tamla brought it as a gift. Like, they could at least be polite about it and not make, like, rude comments. So, Tamla ended up being the only person to drink the tequila since everyone else refused and she had several tequila mixed drinks over the course of that night. Sarah and Nicole were the only ones not drinking at all because they were planning to go home later. Over the course of the night, everyone watched the game, they hung out, they had snacks, they took cute photos together and, you know, they just continued to drink and relax. One of the women named Jennifer actually had a history of overusing alcohol in the past. She even had a DUI and she was noticeably drunk that night night. Tamla went out to the backyard patio a few times to smoke some cigarettes. She was often joined by another woman who would just keep her company as no one else there smoked cigarettes. Now, Madeline, who was actually John's aunt, smoked weed with Tamla earlier in the night and Stacy had just one puff. John noticed that they were smoking and she got really upset and she actually went outside and she made them stop smoking. Now, the reason she was upset was because John's boyfriend named Jose was actually in the basement and he was a pre trial officer and smoking weed is illegal in the state of Georgia. Jose and Tom came up during the game's halftime to eat the gumbo that Madeline had made them with all of the women. So again, even though it was supposed to be just a girl's night, the men did eventually come up and, you know, mingle with everyone else. After they ate their food, they actually asked the men to leave and to go buy some ice because they had run out. When Jose and Tom returned with the ice, they joined all the women and they watched the rest of the game with them on the main floor of the house. At around 10 p.m., 
Paula arrived at the party, and by that time, Sarah and Nicole were getting ready to leave, and they apparently left at around 10.30 p.m. The remaining guests at the party decided to play Cards Against Humanity. Now, the game didn't last too long because, you know, everyone was getting tired, and some people were too drunk to focus very long. So after they played the game, they all started getting ready for bed. At around 12.30 p.m., Tamla FaceTimed her family to say goodnight to Leander and to the kids. Now, Leander remembers saying it seemed like Tamla was having a good time. She looked happy. She was actually showing him to the rest of the girl group, and it just seemed like everything was fine. After this, Tamla made another FaceTime call to her daughter. Now, Jennifer was by far the most drunk of the group, and another woman named Marcy actually helped put her to bed. At around 12.45 a.m., they went into one of the bedrooms to watch a movie, and then they went to bed. Everyone else also started getting ready for bed at around 1.15 in the morning. Now, while everyone was deciding what rooms to sleep in, Tamla expressed interest in going home and actually not spending the night there. I was watching an interview that Tamla's husband, Leander, did, and he said that his wife just did not like to sleep at other people's houses. So he just knew that this is probably why she wanted to go home, because she wanted to get back to her family and just sleep in the comfort of her own home. However, Stacy, Tom, and John told her that she needed to spend the night and not go home because she had been drinking. So after a couple of minutes of convincing, Tamla agreed to stay the night, but she didn't really seem too excited to go to bed. People said that she was asking them to stay up with her, but everyone was pretty tired and all they wanted was to go to sleep. Stacy says that she remembers Tamla had been upset that everyone had a sleeping buddy but her. Okay, wait, that seems just a little weird to me. Like she's the only one that's sleeping mm-hmm. alone out of all of these people out of pre-planned sleepover yeah. party. No, yeah, she was the only person that didn't have a sleeping buddy, and she was the only person that was going to sleep downstairs. So while everyone else was trying to find, like, a bedroom to sleep in and was getting ready to, you know, sleep with their person, she was the only one left alone downstairs. So it was just a little bit weird, and she obviously didn't want to sleep alone, so she expressed this to, you know, John and everyone else at the party. So after expressing this, Stacy said that she actually left her phone downstairs with Tamla. That way their phones could sleep together. And then Stacy and her husband, husband Tom went off to bed. Tamla and Bridget were the only ones still up and they were hanging out in the kitchen talking. Bridget actually wasn't spending the night and she was waiting for her husband Gary to come pick her up. Now the reason she changed her mind about sleeping there was because she felt anxious sleeping at someone else's house. So Tamla was having some gumbo while she waited for Bridget's husband to arrive and Tamla told Bridget that she was actually going to go smoke a cigarette once Bridget left and then she was finally going to go to bed. Jose went down at one point to get his phone charger from the basement at around 1.30 in the morning, and he said that Tamla was still in the kitchen. He says that he saw her by herself, but it's possible that someone else was there because there was a wall that stopped him from having a full view of the room. When Bridget's husband finally arrived, Tamla walked her to the door, hugged her goodnight, and then Bridget left. Now, the house actually had a security system that connected to John's phone, and it alerted her phone as well as logged when doors leading outside opened and closed throughout the night. The system alerted John's phone that the front door had opened at around 1.47 a.m. that night. Then the back door was opened at 1.49 a.m., consistent with Bridget leaving and Tamla going outside to smoke some cigarettes. Then at around 4.10 in the morning, the front door opened again, which is when Marcy left to go home. She actually had started a new job at Coach at their local outlet mall, and she had set an alarm on her phone so she could go home and have plenty of time to get ready for work. After that, at around 7.30 a.m., Paula left. Then at around 8 to 8.30 a.m. on November 4th, 2018, Stacy and Tom woke up to get their kids. Stacy went into the living room to grab her phone where she had left it the night before next to Tamla phone and both of their phones were still there. So she saw Tamla's phone but not Tamla. Yeah she didn't see Tamla she just grabbed her phone she saw that Tamla's phone was still there and then you know she just went on and continued with her day. Maybe she didn't know if Tamla was supposed to be sleeping in the living room or if she was supposed to be sleeping in the basement I'm not sure. But after Stacy woke up and grabbed her phone the next person to wake up was John's aunt Madeline who also got up between 8 and 8 30 a.m and then went to go make herself some coffee. As she was making coffee she looked out the window and that's when she saw Tamla lying outside, face down, not moving. Madeline says that her first reaction was to get on her knees and pray. Wait, that's her first reaction? Yeah, that was her first reaction to just pray instead of going outside to see if Tamla was okay, you know, checking if she was alive or injured. In, in potentially like 
critical moments. Yeah, exactly. In a critical moment, she just sat down and prayed. I don't really get why she did that, but that's what she did. Okay, crazy. After she finished praying, she went upstairs and she went to go tell Jose about what she had just seen. In Jose and John's room, Madeline could hear water running and she thought that they were showering. So she only lightly knocked on the door instead of just opening it up just in case they were showering together. And then she went down to the window again to look at Tamla one more time for about a minute. Then she went back upstairs and she knocked on Jose and John's door again. This time, John told her to come in. And Madeline told John that she needed to talk to Jose because John's friend from the island was laying outside and not moving. Yeah, that's how she described Tamla, her friend from the islands. A little bit weird, that's but crazy. yeah, a little bit weird. But I get it. They just met that night. So maybe she didn't know Tamla's full name, but it's still odd. Like the girl from the island. Jose quickly put on his clothes and he ran downstairs to see what had happened. John asked Madeline if she needed to call 911 and they did. However, it wasn't until a half hour later, at around 8.59 a.m., that they called the police. This is that call. Forsyth County, 911. Hi, yes, um, I, I need an ambulance and a police to my home. What's the address? 4450 Woodlake Court. 4450 Woodlake, okay. All right, 4450 Woodlake Court, what is your name? My name is John Myers, J-E-A-N-N-E. -N -N -E. Okay, and your phone number is 609. Yes. Okay, what's going on? Um, we had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking. And we just went out there outside, and she's laying face down in the backyard. It looks like may I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff. Okay, is she breathing? I, I don't know. I don't know if she's face down. Okay. How, how old is she? At 41. Here, hold on. The 911 call starts off with John asking for an ambulance and for police to come to her house. The operator asks her, you know, what's your address? Can I have some more information? And John gives her her home address, her full name, everything. After that, the operator's like, okay, what's going on? John goes on to explain how they had a little get-together the night before, that everyone had gone to bed, but that one person decided to stay up and go on the balcony. She also said that this person had been drinking and that now in the morning when everyone woke up, they had gone outside and that they found this woman face down in the backyard. John said, I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony. I don't know. She looks stiff. The operator starts asking her more questions. You know, is she breathing? How old is she? What happened? And John just seems very flustered on this call. So she just passes the phone over to another person and says, here, hold on. So that's when Jose comes on the phone and he says, hey, this is Jose Barrera. The operator asks him, did you check to see if she's breathing? And he said, she's not moving. She's not breathing. She's not moving one bit. She's not breathing. Um, I just try to assess her Tesla. She's completely face down in the yard. Um, she is stiff. Okay. Do you know if she, um, um, do you see any blood or anything? Where she... Are you there? I am. Okay. I'm sorry I'm not... I was outside. It's okay. I'm not sure what happened to Alana for a second. Do you see any blood or anything to where, from where she fell? Um, I... I... I don't know if I should move her over. I mean, she's completely face down. Okay. I mean, can you just check and see if she's breathing? If, if she's not breathing and you, and you know she's gone, then just leave her where she's at. If she... Okay. He then goes on to explain pretty much the same thing that John had said earlier about how they were at the party and how Tamla was the last person that they know of that was awake. Okay, but why is this party information even relevant to this call? Yeah, that's how I felt too. I felt like they were kind of over explaining it instead of just saying just come here, like, help me out. I'll explain in person. I felt like they were kind of being repetitive with the party factor and about the fact that she was on the balcony. So it kind of seems like maybe they're like planting the seeds of this story by yeah like just trying to get the story straight yeah by like repeating yeah. like 
oh party balcony yeah, that's kind of the vibe that i got too like they were just being a little bit too repetitive jose goes on to explain all of this and you know he never attempts to perform cpr even though he is professionally trained and he also says on the call that he isn't sure if tamla is alive or not again it's just a little weird to me because even if she wasn't breathing they could have still tried to do cpr on this call he also said that the balcony railing to the ground was probably around 20 feet and we know it was only one story above ground so that's not not a very big fall. Jose then goes on to explain that there was a camera facing the back deck and that that may have caught the incident. He also goes on to say that Tamla was the only smoker in the group and he was saying, you know, I'm out on the deck right now and there are cigarettes and lighters out here. Also, just considering everything that's going on, John and especially Jose don't really sound that frantic or emotional. And I understand that everyone reacts differently. You know, some people can sound completely calm while going through a situation like this. And other people can sound, you know, very frantic and, you know, overwhelmed. But it's just something that a lot of people have noted that they don't sound too emotional or, you know, nervous about this. This 911 call lasted about eight minutes. So everyone in the house who saw Tamla's body that morning said that she was positioned face down towards the ground with both arms straight at her sides, palms up and her legs straight back. John says that she, Jose, Jen, and her aunt Madeline all saw Tamla's body positioned like this and they remember it specifically because it looked so unnatural and it would have been almost impossible for Tamla to fall off the balcony into that exact position. So now let's talk about the investigation. Police and a coroner arrived at John's house at around 9.07 a.m. on November 4th, 2018. They declared that Tamla was dead and EMTs were told not to come. But police documented when they arrived that they had found Tamla lying with her arm bent at the elbow as if she had maybe tried to brace a fall from the balcony. And the photos taken at the scene also show one arm being bent, but the witnesses didn't change their story about her arms being straight. John actually says in a statement, which is online that she would never forget that Tamla had her arms at her side because her first thought was why would she fall like that and she suggests that maybe the coroner or the police wrote down the arm placement wrong i think it should also be noted that there were only a total of five photos taken at the scene which is way less than normal for this kind of death the distance from the balcony to the ground was measured to be 14 feet and 10.5 inches, which again isn't a huge distance. You know, when there's like fires, people often jump from the balcony to escape a fire and they're most likely fine. But again, you know, things can happen. Also, the only time everyone was on the upstairs balcony during the party was when they had tried to turn on the fire pit, but there was no propane in the tank, so they just gave up. So that wasn't where Tamla was going to have her cigarettes. Tamla's body had visible injuries, including cuts to her wrist, legs, and the side of her face. While Tamla's body was brought to the medical examiner for an autopsy, everyone else from the party was held back for questioning, and the police asked John to call everyone who had already left to come back to the house. However, it is worth noting that everyone at the party was held in the same room without supervision, so in between questioning, they all had the chance to talk, which isn't normal at all for a regular police investigation, because it allows people to get their story straight, which again, is not allowed. So while the guests were being questioned, the police went over to Leander's house to break the tragic news to him. But even though this was something that should have been handled in a very sensitive and empathetic way, Leander describes the police officer's tone as aggressive and cold. He says they asked him three times if his name was Lee, and each time Leander asked, what is this pertaining to? The cop finally got fed up with him and said, it's about your wife, she's deceased in a tone that Leander says was without any sense of remorse or consideration. The police refused to let Leander go over to the house. They told him that Tamla had tripped on accident and that she had fallen off the balcony to her death. Now, the investigation hadn't even concluded at this point, so they really shouldn't be giving him this information or, you know, this as a cause of death since there wasn't any proof of that yet. And police were just treating it like it was an accident and they didn't preserve the crime scene at all, which again is not normal. They should have blocked off the crime scene, they should have just done more. 
Now, in interviews, when John detailed her day before the party, she said she was out getting things for the party during the day, and that she came home later to see Stacy, Nicole, and Madeline setting up in the kitchen. John then went upstairs, and she says when she came down later, it was around 7, 7.30 p.m., and most of the guests were already there. So it seems like she was really close to everyone at the party, and they all had easy access to her home. So there were two main investigators in the case, Michael Christian and Tyler Sexton. John actually bought them both Dunkin Donut gift cards. In the recording from that day, you can hear John joking about the gift cards and Madeline telling the investigators that she made them cookies. Someone just died at their party and they had time to get the police gift cards and bake cookies. I mean, that's just a little bit weird. Shouldn't they be doing that kind of stuff for Tamla's family, you know, making them food or a casserole or something? Just a little bit odd. Now, in the recording after giving the police the Dunkin' Donuts gift cards, John says to the police, do you need me or can I start getting ready for this funeral? Her referring to it as this, not Tamla's funeral, really makes it seem like she's minimizing the situation or dehumanizing Tamla. So Michael ended up getting removed from the investigation because he was leaking information about the case to his girlfriends. Yes, girlfriends. He was having extramarital affairs and he was leaking the information about the case to these girls. One of those girls also came out and said that he had groomed her for a year and an investigation was opened into him, but he actually resigned before they could fire him. He came out with a statement about this and said, quote, I am far from a perfect human. I chose to end a long-term extramarital relationship abruptly. This person, out of anger and hurt, chose to go to Sheriff Freeman with a list of alleged misconduct on my part. In 2020 hindsight, I would have not resigned but stayed for the investigation and taken what punishment was fitting up to termination. As is, the IA investigation lacks my side of the story and makes me out to be something I am not. All the good I have ever done in 16 years of law enforcement is gone with this document. I just feel like it's a little weird of a statement to make. Like, if you are leaking things to multiple girlfriends and sharing, you know, private details about the case, that's a really bad thing to do. Like, you deserve the punishment that you were gonna get. And, you know, just because you were an amazing police officer all those other years doesn't mean that what you did isn't bad. So it's also believed that both Michael and Tyler are racist, and there's photos of them with these gollywogs. For those who don't know, gollywogs are essentially black face dolls that offensively depict black people. I don't even know where you would get something like this, but I'm sure they pose with them for a very specific reason, and it's not because they like dolls. All the interviews done in this investigation are available online, and in not one interview is one of the guests asked if they heard anything that night. John's security system alerts her and logs when doors are are opened and closed. The back door was opened at 1.49 a.m. and closed at 1.50 a.m., consistent with Tamla going out to smoke a cigarette. The back door opened again at 1.57 a.m., still consistent with the time that it would take to smoke. However, that back door never closes. It stays open. Also, the garage door opened at 1.39 a.m. and it closed at 1.40. Then, the garage door opens at 1.40 a.m. again, but this time it never closes. And we don't know who was coming and going from the garage. None of the party guests have said that it was them. Okay, wait. Is the back door and the balcony door logged separately or what? Yeah what is going on there no i know it was a little bit confusing so from my research it was discovered that the balcony was not part of the log so john had security systems in her backyard but she hadn't charged them in a while so they were all dead and i know that that sounds really sketchy like i thought the same thing at first but she says that that night was not the only night that the cameras weren't working and that it had been for a much longer period of time but what is weird is that jose had said on the 911 call that there were cameras but in John's interview, she mentioned that Jose knew that the cameras were dead because he had helped her look for chargers. So why is he telling the 911 operator, yeah, there's cameras, like maybe that'll capture what happened, when he knew that the cameras were dead? Another part of Jose's story just seemed kind of sketchy. At first, he said that he went outside to check on Tamla right away, as soon as Madeline ran upstairs to tell them what she had seen. And later, he says he went out the balcony door first, and before he looked down to where Tamla was lying, he says that he saw a cigarette and a lighter on the ground of the balcony. He says he picked it up and he put them on the fire pit because he has OCD and they were in his way. But Jose also says that he wouldn't have stopped to pick up the lighter and the cigarette if he knew what he was about to see down below. This doesn't really make a lot of sense because when Madeline ran into Jose and John's room, she told them that Tamla was lying outside face down. 
so Jose didn't know what he was about to see. If the cigarette and the lighter were actually on the upstairs balcony from Tamla's last cigarette of the night, then why would the downstairs door be opened and closed that night after Bridget had left? Because if the log wasn't that balcony door, then who was that? Also, I'm confused. Yeah. So no cigarette and no lighter were actually found on her body or next to her body. Yeah, nope. Nothing was found near her body. That's weird because, like, you don't go outside and put a cigarette and lighter on the floor or wherever you yeah. do and then fall, like, what? No, I agree. Like, it's just very conflicting statements from Jose, and it's just weird that nothing was found near her body. So it was also later discovered that Marcy, who had left the house at 4.10 to go work in the morning, her shift actually didn't start until 10.30 in the morning. So to a lot of people, it just seems pretty weird that she would need six hours to get ready for work. Bridget had said Tamla walked her to the door when she had left, but her husband actually said that only Bridget was in the doorway when he came to pick her up. There was also maybe a theory early on that maybe Tamla didn't fall from the balcony that maybe she had just tripped over the little garden border which i don't really understand why it was even a theory because i don't know how someone could die from just tripping at ground level it kind of just makes it seem like police were fine with saying that this was an accidental fall no matter what so an autopsy was done on tamla and when it came back the examiner had discovered a lot of small cuts and lacerations on tamla's body she had a half inch by inch abrasion on the right side of her forehead there was a half inch abrasion on her left upper eyelid and there was a half inch by half inch abrasion on the bridge of her nose another half inch abrasion on her temple and a quarter inch one on her chin she also had a one inch laceration on her right wrist a quarter inch abrasion to her forearm and a quarter inch abrasion on the tip of her index finger tamla's right wrist was also dislocated and one of her spine vertebrae had been fractured there were also two half inch lacerations on her legs internally there was a small small laceration on the right ventricle of her heart. The report said that she sustained severe injuries to her head, neck, and torso. The toxicology report found that Tamla's blood alcohol concentration was at 0.238, almost three times the legal limit. She was also found with trace amounts of THC, and there was actually a little bit of marijuana found inside her purse. The interview that I was watching of Leander on Instagram Live, he said that yes, his wife did smoke weed. He doesn't really classify that as a drug, but he says, yeah, she did smoke weed, but she did not do hard drugs. However, there was also Xanax found in her system. Tamla wasn't even prescribed Xanax, and she wasn't known to be someone who ever took it. The report found that Xanax wasn't metabolized in her liver, which means that she had just taken it before her time of death. Now, Bridget, who has a Xanax prescription, says that she didn't give Tamla any. However, it was discovered that Bridget did give Xanax and other anti-anxiety medications to the other woman that night and in the next morning, but not to Tamla. Tamla's death was ruled as an accident due to blunt force injuries, consistent with a fall, and her death was officially ruled an accident. So yeah, what the medical examiner determined supported what these witnesses were saying, that Tamla fell off the balcony in the middle of the night. The report said that there was no foul play involved in her death, and again, it was just an accident. It's just odd there were no photos taken during Tamla's autopsy. It's just so unusual because autopsy photos are required, and the crime scene documentation was just so poorly done. Now, this report was made public on February 6, 2019. And then on February 20th, 2019, the police officially closed the case. However, before the case was closed in December of 2018, Jose, who worked at the police station, actually got caught looking into confidential files to try and find out what the police had, and Jose was actually fired from his job because of this. Three days before he was fired, Dayton Daily News reports that Jose received a letter informing him that he had been placed on leave for an investigation pertaining to you using your position to access confidential files on a current investigation surrounding a death in which you were a witness. So, Jose being fired from the police department was an interesting interesting development that renewed people's interest in the case. According to Forsyth County Sheriff's Office, the incident report alleges that Jose gained access to information on Tamla's friend, who's named Michelle Graves. Now, Michelle had been publicly calling the entire investigation into question. So Jose was apparently, you know, specifically trying to find out what information the investigators had on Michelle Graves. Now, Michelle wasn't there the night that Tamla died, but she was very close friends with her. And she had made about 13 posts on Facebook questioning the investigation and 
and calling out the party guests all by name. Her posts, by the way, were viewed more than 100,000 times. This might not seem like a lot, but Tamla's case hardly had any media coverage. Apparently, people in the town didn't even know that this had happened. So she was being very vocal about what happened to her best friend, and she was trying to get to the bottom of this. So the fact that Jose was trying to get information about her and trying to, you know, see what Michelle knew is very suspicious. So John and other party guests actually sued Michelle, you know, but Michelle says that they have also threatened her and they have even had her arrested all because she wants the truth of what actually happened to her friend. Now, when Leander went to the funeral home to view Tamla, he found that she had been painted several shades darker than her complexion. He said it looked like she had black shoe polish on her face. Leander was understandably extremely upset about this, and he told his sons who were waiting outside that they couldn't see Tamla. He also went back in with his oldest son, and Leander says that neither one of them were able to get emotional because she looked so different. On February 20th, 2019, the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office said that after spending 300 hours investigating the case and conducting 30 interviews, that the case would be officially closed and that there was no evidence of foul play. Literally how? Yeah, I don't get it either. I feel like they didn't really do like a thorough investigation or like, you know, just like did more research about it. I feel like they were just like, yeah, it was an accident. Let's call it a day. So yeah, they closed the case in 2019. Nothing really happened with Tamla's case until a year later in 2020. This is when millions of people came together to demand the case to be reopened. This was after George Floyd's tragic death gave birth to the Black Lives Matter movement. Celebrities like Kim Kardashian and 50 Cent posted about Tamla's case on social media to help shine light on the fact that Tamla's death was never properly looked into. So because of all this publicity and everyone calling for justice, as well as a Forsyth County Sheriff named Ron Freeman, you know, he came out and he actually asked the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to independently look at Tamla's death. And because of all of this combined together, the GBI officially reopened the case in June of 2020. Of course, Tamla's family was so happy that the case was reopened, but her sister Summer came out and said that it was unfortunate that it had to take other people's heartbreak and, you know, other people's loss. For example, what happened to George Floyd for people to give proper attention to the case involving her sister's death. And a lot of people wonder, if George Floyd hadn't been killed and the Black Lives Matter movement hadn't been, you know, so big, would this case have ever been reopened? Would police have even cared to actually solve the case and try to figure out what actually happened? Until that year in 2020, her family had not spoken publicly about what had happened to Tamla. Summer says that it's just too hard to talk about it. She said her sister was never a sloppy drunk or incoherent, so she doubts that her sister would have picked a slumber party, you know, with people she had just started to get to know as a place to start behaving that way. So she knew that her death was not an accident. Now, the investigation began and a lot of new information came out because of it. For example, the party guest text messages and call history were looked into. However, at this point, it had been two years. Two of the guests had gotten new phone numbers, so their records weren't looked into. That seems suspicious. Yeah. Who changes their phone number? like that yeah like so quickly like within two years that's not, how i felt too but not even that like who changes their phone number yeah. ever especially if you're like a mom you know no, i know like, i've had the same phone number for like ever like i never change it but yeah it was just a little bit weird to me that they changed their number and it just makes me wonder you know did they do that because they knew their records couldn't be looked into if they had a new number so another huge factor revealed during this new investigation is that there was a supplemental report from forsyth county that said that Jose had called investigator Andy Callen on November 7th, 2018, just days after Tamla's death. And Jose said that he checked Tamla's left arm for a pulse. So the document actually reads, so Jose Barrera did in fact move Horsford's left arm. Now this would explain why witnesses report seeing something different, but it also doesn't explain why Tamla's body was in that original position. But this is where things get crazy. In the new investigation, GBI special agent Derek Alasco interviewed Jose about moving Tamla's arm, and he said that he never did that. Now, when the special agent showed Jose this statement, Jose said that the report was bullshit. He said that he never called investigator Andy saying that he moved Tamla's arm because he says that he absolutely did not do that. He said for certain, quote, there is no way I checked for a pulse. 
Now, that is just crazy to me. The fact that he's like denying that, even though there's like a record of him saying that he did move her arm. So earlier I mentioned Officer Michael, you know, he was being investigated because he shared information about the case with one of his girlfriends. And in this new investigation, that girlfriend was interviewed. She said that Michael shared photos of Tamla's body with her and that he had become obsessed with the case, that he even had panic attacks about it. The girlfriend also said that Michael did believe Tamla's death was an accident, but that he didn't think she fell from the balcony based on her injuries. Okay, well, it was literally his job to figure out what happened, so I don't really understand why he just ran with the balcony theory. Also, why is he showing people Tamla's dead body? It's just so wrong. Now, the girlfriend also said that Michael had discovered phone calls between Jose and Officer Callan before him and John even made the 911 call. And Michael believed that Callan helped John, Jose, and the others come up with a story. Now, a little backstory on Jose and Officer Callan. They actually worked together at the courthouse prior to Tamla's death. So they did have, you know, some type of relationship before all of this went down. Now, going back to Michael's girlfriend, she also said that Michael was afraid that he was going to go down for the other officers who set the scene. So the GBI also looked into Jose's phone records with everyone else's and Verizon confirmed that Jose didn't use his phone to send any texts or calls between 12 a.m. and 10 a.m. the day that Tamla died. So the GBI wasn't able to find any evidence that these calls ever happened between Jose and Detective Callan and again both denied ever talking to each other before the 911 call. I don't know if possibly they made calls on something like WhatsApp to avoid any phone record history, but I guess Michael didn't share how he got that information with his girlfriend. The GBI also obtained screenshots of Snapchat messages Michael sent this girlfriend on November 4th, 2018, the morning Tamla was discovered. He messaged his girlfriend saying, Hello, sir. I know we've never met, but I'm here to tell you that your wife and the mother of your six children is dead. Oh yes, I am happy to report that she was really, really drunk, trip landed face down in the backyard and either through hyperthermia, positional asphyxia, or aspirated on her own puke. Not sure which one. I know you have fun memories. Enjoy corralling these six boys who are now going ape shit. Yeah, he literally sent that to his girlfriend, like word for word. And I think what he is saying is referencing him telling Leander about Tamla's death. So he's kind of like mimicking like, oh, like this is what I'm going to tell the husband. It's just disgusting, like doing things like that are a regular part of an officer's job. You're supposed to be empathetic and, you know, sensitive when it comes to this information, but he was just joking around as if this was, you know, something funny. There was also a screenshot of a message from November 19th where Michael says, Greeting from racist cracker bastard murder covering up land. How are you? He then continues to say, It's a nice rainy day, good for digging shallow graves by the roadside. Now, the family's attorney, Ralph, believes that Graves is a reference to Michelle Graves, Tamla's friend, who, as I mentioned earlier, has been very critical in the investigation and has been questioning what actually happened. And in the message, the word Graves was capitalized, as if that's like, Michelle's last name. So it's just a little bit weird that he would say that. And, you know, these messages are just very odd. I know people would probably say that this is just a joke, but it's just inappropriate. And I always feel like there's a little bit of truth to every joke. So when Michael was interviewed by the GBI, he said that all of those messages he sent were meant to be sarcastic, but he also denied knowing about Jose and Callan talking on the phone or literally ever before the 911 call. He also said he believes and, you know, still believes that Tamla accidentally fell from the balcony and that she was never moved. John's neighbor, Marianne, who was also interviewed this time around, said that she believed Tamla was killed. She said she could tell John was fake crying on the day Tamla's body was discovered and that everyone who was at the party came back to John's house every day for a week and Mary Ann believes it was so that they could all get their story straight. She also added that she thought Jose must have made a play, you know, like a pass at Tamla and that's why she was killed. Mary Ann says that she thought Jose was weird but she couldn't put her finger on why and that she's happy that the case has been reopened. So Leander's best friend, Stephen Reynolds, was also interviewed. You know, he was never there but I guess he just wanted to share this information. He told the GBI that he believes Tamla's death was sexually motivated. He said that two of the couples present at this party were swingers, and the only couples there would be John and Jose and Stacy and Tom. So Stephen told them when he first heard about Tamla's death, he truly believed that she was killed after someone tried to initiate something with her sexually. Wow. 
of course the only two men that are there are swingers like what are the odds that they're like swingers according to this friend but this information doesn't come up again in the investigation or anywhere in the original interviews and it seems like the gbi didn't even you know further investigate this in their new investigation either how can they not follow up on that yeah, I'm like, how can they not confirm if these people were actually swingers or not? Or, you know, like what the the situation was. I just I find it a little bit weird, but it's been reported that the GBI focused a lot of their investigation on Leander, Tamla's husband. They actually got search warrants for his phone and social media, but this didn't lead to any evidence or anything. Now, I know that husbands are typically the ones who are investigated the most in murder cases of wives, but for him to be the main focus in this investigation and, you know, other much more likely things things to not be looked into is just odd. I mean, Leander wasn't even there the night that his wife died. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, no. He wasn't there. He wanted the case reopened. Exactly. I'm like, he had no idea that any of this had happened. He wasn't there. There's just no proof that he did something, but yet the GBI was like thoroughly investigating him. There was also testing done on paint that was found on Tamla's pajamas, but that ended up being a dead end. In July of 2021, the GBI concluded their investigation and said that no charges would be filed in the death of Tamla Horsford because there was no indication of foul play. This just makes literally no sense to me when there are literally several indications of foul play or that something more happened. A lot of the interviews in the second investigation are posted on online and people in the comments are upset about how the investigators never asked follow-up questions to bring things that seemed important and that overall they didn't seem like they were doing a very thorough job like in the neighbor marianne's interview they never asked her specifically if she heard anything and she actually tells them that one neighbor did hear something but i don't know if that neighbor ever ended up being interviewed the horsford family lawyer ralph fernandez actually wrote leander a letter saying that he and his office reviewed the case and said that a homicide is a strong possibility. In this letter, he said that he and his team recently finished the exhaustive review of the records relating to the investigation and that in a shocking new development, this review reflects that a homicide is a strong possibility. He wrote that witness statements are in conflict and that a potential subject handled the body as well as evidence prior to law enforcement arriving to the house. He said that it's remarkable that there were no photos taken during the autopsy of Tamla's body and that this had been done at someone's directive because such a practice is unheard heard of. In the letter, he also made a bold statement. He contradicted the original report from the medical examiner of Tamla's death that stated it was an accident. He contradicts that and says that no, it appears that Tamla was involved in a struggle and that there were abrasions noted consistent with that scenario. This letter also goes on to state the difficulties of getting the records from the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office, pointing out that the case agent was a close friend of the subject who turned out to be a leak of the ongoing investigation and that he has come to the conclusion that the truth never had a chance here. He also made a statement suggesting that Tamla was killed and further accused local law enforcement of covering up her death. You know, this attorney has been on it, you know, because he also made a statement saying the people of Georgia should know that the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigations, is compromised. The obstruction their top ranks engaged in, their disregard for the law, and their tactics attempting now to diminish the impact of their contact and the cover-up of the Horsford homicide investigation does not bode well in today's tragedy. Police ruled her death as accidental, but because of all the renewed discussions about race, politics, and no equal treatment under the law, the case has sparked a public outcry. So Tamla's family actually had an independent autopsy done, and they found that her dislocated wrist was actually a compound Smith fracture to her arm. And the fracture to the vertebrae on her spine wasn't even found at all in this new autopsy. They also found extensive injuries all over her body. There were parallel scratches to one arm and photos would not have proven recent use of defensive force. So, for example, if they had taken photos the day that Tamla had died, it wouldn't have proved that she had, you know, been defensive that day until the injuries and the bruises would have later developed. So, both autopsies agree that the cause of death was blunt force trauma, but this autopsy said that it was from different injuries, basically more consistent with a struggle happening than her falling. The attorney also said that evidence was disposed of and that there was no inquiry followed. He also said that despite repeated requests, police just never provided them with the autopsy photos. Now, they also didn't find any traumatic injuries to Tamla's skull bones. The absence of bruising to broken bones in her skull raises a flag to the cause of death as falling from the second story of a building. In the crime scene photos, you can see a bone sticking out near her right wrist. Now, 
the injury is significant because there was very little blood found at the scene, raising questions about where the injury occurred and whether it happened before or after her death. Now, what little blood can be found on Tamla's sleeve is on the opposite side of her injury. Tamla's father said, I think the cut in the wrist was post-mortem. I don't think she died with that cut. I think it was put there after the fact. In the aftermath of the case, the family has also accused the lead detective, Michael Christian, of investigating Tamla instead of the perpetrators. Michael had called Tamla porch lady, and he had made many other racist remarks about her. Again, the lack of empathy for a victim, you know, a mother of six who had just lost her life is astounding. On top of the fact that, you know, this is someone who's professionally deals with victims. He should never be making comments like that. No, unfortunately, as of 2023, the case is officially closed by Forsyth County and the GBI. They have no plausible answers to the inconsistencies in their investigation, and they believe that no new evidence can be found after so much time has passed. The family's lawyer, Ralph, intends to write up his own report with all of the inconsistencies and the evidence in hopes that it will lead to new information. It's just really upsetting because there's so much more information that the autopsy and police should have gotten on this case. Like, what was time of death. Why was the back door never closed again after the last time? I think it's also worth noting that there's stairs on the balcony that lead to the back door and the back area, so someone could have gotten into or left the house without setting off the door notifications. And I feel like investigators could do recreations to see if it's even possible to get injuries Tamla did from falling 14 feet. Also, the person who did the first autopsy, were they ever questioned or looked into? Because the lack of photos and just completely wrong injuries listed isn't a mistake that a person in that profession should be making. The fact that the crime scene photos of Tamla's body and the witness statements just don't match and, you know, all the witnesses stand by the fact that they saw her with both arms straight down. There's just a lot of conflicting statements. So for that reason alone, I think the case and the original investigators need to be looked into more. And again, if Tamla really did just trip while having a cigarette, how would the cigarette and the lighter be up on the floor or wherever on the balcony and not with her on the ground? And no one has come forward about being the one to give Tamla Xanax. Also, Marianne said that one of the other neighbors had a ring camera. I don't know if in this new investigation they tried to get that footage, but it would have at least answered the questions about why the garage door was open twice and left open all night. You know, even if this case was just an accident, the way it was investigated shows the racial prejudice of the police in this area. And although there was a second investigation, it's possible those prejudices were still present. Tamla's family believes that somebody has yet to come forward with information of what truly happened that that night. They hope that they find the courage to speak up and give Tamla's family the peace that they have been looking for. There is a petition on change.org to reopen her case. The petition has, I believe, over 700,000 signatures. And this petition is calling for the FBI to handle the reinvestigation of the case. So I will link the website under my YouTube video as well as on my Instagram so you guys can check it out and sign the petition if you're able to. But all right, you guys, that is pretty much everything I have for today's video. My thoughts and prayers go out to Tamla's family, to her husband, and to all of her children. I'm so sorry that this happened to Tamla and that you all haven't received the answers that you're looking for. She did not deserve this, and I wish that she had justice. I will keep you guys posted on the investigation. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to What Happened to Tamla Horsford. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review What Happened wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to my YouTube channel, True Crime Jackie, for full video episodes. You can also find me on Instagram at the Jackie Flores and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Thank you guys again so much for being here, and I will see you all in the next video. Bye, guys.